So we've been going through a series this Advent, talking about how the Spirit changes us. And if you're a guest here, a visitor, we're glad that you've joined us this morning. If you're a guest because of uh, being part of the baby dedications, and we're glad that we were able to celebrate that with you this morning. So we have a tradition here at the Gathering Church, and it's that every year at Advent season, we slow down intentionally, and we ask ourselves, how has the gospel of Jesus Christ changes, changed us in the last year? Now, when we say, how has the gospel changed us, we mean things like, are we a less jealous people? Are we a more selfless people? Are we kinder? Do we love our neighbor more than we did last year? And as we said, I think I've said almost every week, what's inherent within the question, how has the gospel changed us, is the notion that the gospel does change us. That the message of Jesus is not just for our justification, meaning it's not just how we have a right standing with God, though that's absolutely true. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the path of discipleship. It is the way that we grow to be like Jesus. It is the way that we become less jealous, less selfish, more self-centered. And the way that that works is because if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had everything, was in perfect relationship with his Father in the unity of the Spirit from eternity past, all the riches, all the wealth, perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect joy, if Jesus entered into our world, and if the incarnation of the Son of God, what we celebrate on Christmas morning, if that's true, and that Jesus walked on this earth and laid down his life for our sake, and was crucified on a Roman cross, satisfying the wrath of God, rising for our justification, and stands at the end of history waiting to bring his people back to him, if that's true, then it should have a profound effect on my little self-centeredness, on your jealousy. Because if the king of the world gave himself for you, if the king of the world loved you selflessly, as it were, then surely that should have a profound effect on our own lives. So this morning we continue in Romans. We are in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. I'll read us the text now. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit, His Spirit, who dwells in you. That ends the reading of God's Word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, for this Advent season. 
this season where we anticipate the appearing, the first appearing of the Son of God. We pray that through the preaching of your word, we would be a changed people, Lord. We pray that um, we would be enamored afresh with Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So point one is the spirit inside of us. The spirit inside of us. So let me just set this point up just by summarizing the text. And I'm just going to read word for word what the text says, but summarize under two headings. One is set on the flesh or in the flesh. And the other is set on the spirit or in the spirit. So first, this is just what the text says. Set on the flesh. Those that have their minds set on the things of the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. It cannot. And the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. Contrasted to the spirit. The mind that is set on the things of the spirit is life and peace. The life that is set in the mind of the Spirit has God's Spirit dwelling in you. The life of the Spirit is life and righteousness. The life of the Spirit is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling inside of you. The life that is on the Spirit dwells in you and gives life to your mortal bodies. Starking contrast. Verse 9 says... However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. This has got to be one of the most clearest statements in the New Testament of what it simply means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We do not belong to Christ if we do not have the Spirit of Christ. We are not Christians if we don't have the Spirit of Christ. And in the sentence just before this one, it says that the Spirit of Christ is called God's Spirit, the Spirit of God. You are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So in 9, 10, and 11, there are three different ways that it's used. It says the Spirit of Christ It says the Spirit, and it says the Spirit of God. And all of them say that it it dwells inside of you. It's the mark of being a Christian, that God's Spirit dwells, resides in you. This word here, dwell, is important. It comes from, it's a derivative of the word house. And so the implication here is that the Spirit of God is not just present in your life like some kind of stopover. It's not like a subway station where the spirit stops for a second, hangs out, and then moves on to the next station. The idea here is that the spirit has taken up residence. It's where the spirit lives. It's his home. The spirit's home is inside of you. The implication goes further. It's this idea of nearness and familiarity. And influence. If someone makes your house their home, they'll be near you a lot. You don't just share a house with your wife, hopefully. It's a home together. 
There's closeness. There's familiarity. They become with, more familiar with you and you become more familiar with them. They have an influence on you and they have an influence on the way that you live and so on. And the spirit dwelling inside of us here is not just the spirit uh, outside of us barking commands at us to influence us. He's inside of us, working a new heart and working a mind that is conformed to Jesus so that we will delight to do what he commands us to do. Paul said in chapter 6 and 7 that we have died to the law. We've died to the law in the sense that the law is no longer our source of growth. It's no longer the way that we are conformed to the image of Jesus. Dying to the law doesn't mean that the law doesn't have any moral force on us, that there isn't a moral command for us. It's still right to love your neighbor as yourself. But dying to the law means the law's job isn't to conform you into the image of Jesus. You have a much bigger, a massively larger force, God's spirit dwelling inside of you that conforms you to his image. So that's the first point. The first point is that the mark of a Christian is that they have God's spirit residing within them. And God's spirit conforms us and influences us and works that new heart that God's given us. Second point is that God is making a holy people. As I said a moment ago, the intention behind this verse when we say that we've died to the law wasn't so that we can become a lawless, amoral people. The purpose was that dying to the law meant that dying to the law allowed a new way to be conformed to the image of Jesus to come into our lives so that we could become a holy people. Not so that becoming a holy people would just be eradicated and, and done away with and so on. But that the purpose was that God's spirit would then come to dwell among us that we might be a holy people. I think this word holiness kind of loses its attraction in the modern world, when we think about becoming holy, it sounds boring or drab or, 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 or dull or, or something like that. I've read this quote before, but listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He's writing, this is in letters to an American lady. He says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull until at once they meet a real holy person and it is irresistible. It seems boring at first to think of the notion of holy. It seems like it's not something that we'd want to be into. But the point is that C.S. Lewis is making is actually really profound because he's saying that holy people are anything but boring. He's saying holy people are the kind of people that listen well. Holy people are the kind of people that give themselves to you. Holy people are the kind of person that you have a conversation with them and it seems like they're more interested in listening to you talk, more interested in hearing about you than even getting a word in edgewise. It's simply a delight to be around them. They're an honest person. You can trust them. You delight to trust them. There's a general gleam in your eye, in their eye. Lewis goes on to say to another spot that they laugh easily because they have few cares. They laugh easily because they have few cares. Because a holy person is one that is so enamored with Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done that the things of this earth just grow dim 
and quiet, and it doesn't matter. And it's the kind of person that you can communicate with and be friends with. There's no pretense in them. There's no posturing for themselves. There's no always seeking a relationship in terms of what's in it for me. At the same time, though, they're the kind of person that you want when life turns deadly serious. When that phone call comes, when disaster strikes, they're the first person that comes to your mind of who you want to call because they can turn deadly serious and you would rather have no one else but them in your corner. Whatever else holy people are, they aren't dull. Holy people are irresistible people. But becoming holy is hard work because it often involves the smelting pot of life to remove the impurities from our lives to become holy. God uses the circumstances and suffering and trials of our lives to make us into a holy people. To, 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 to sand and, and brush the rough edges, the barnacles off us, as it were. Becoming a holy people always involves dying to ourselves so that Jesus can be evident. So here, Paul's point is that God is making a holy people. And Paul's point is so remarkable that God desired a holy people so much that he would send his son in the likeness of human flesh to be condemned in the flesh. Because he knew the law wasn't sufficient. God knew the law would not be sufficient to make us into a holy people. But he so desired a beautiful people, a people who were like him, a people who were carefree and laughed easy and were deadly serious when necessary, that he sent his son at the right time in the likeness of human flesh to condemn the law in the flesh. That's how strikingly significant it was for God to have a holy people. So that's point two. We're cruising. It's baby dedication day. You guys want to go to Red Robin, I know it. I do. Hint, hint, father-in-law. So point three, which I will admit is a little bit longer than one and two, but it is my final point. Point three is setting your heart. Setting your heart. Look at verse four and five with me. Actually, five and six with me. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life Wow, and peace. What does Paul mean? What does he mean when he says set the mind on the things of the flesh? By flesh, we don't mean our physical bodies or our our skeletons or we don't even mean like our appetites and our instincts. What we mean by the flesh is the whole of our fallenness. The whole of our person viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. That's what we mean by the flesh. One scholar called the flesh our fallen, egocentric human nature. Our fallen, egocentric Human nature. Another called it the sin-dominated self. 
But Luther, Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, said it best. He said that the flesh is human nature deeply curved in on itself. The flesh is human nature deeply curved in on itself. Since the flesh is our twisted human nature, its desires are for all those things which pander to our self-centeredness. You know how this works out, don't you? The sin-dominated self seeks to become its own Savior and Lord. It seeks to become its own master. We all have these self-salvation projects. And we do it in all sorts of ways in which we seek to measure up. But we seek to measure up in ways that are self-centered. They're to make a name for ourselves. Because there's this sense within all of us that we don't measure up. And so we have these self-salvation projects. These self-salvation projects in which we seek to bolster ourselves. Or we seek to make a name for ourselves. Or we seek to bring significance to the human heart, as it were. And we do it in all sorts of ways. And we do it as soon as that sense of significance, or security, or control, or comfort in our lives seems to be pulled away, we resort to something. We all do it. You do it. I do it. We all resort to a way in which we seek to be our own Savior and Lord. And it's our sin, it's our self-centeredness being curved in on itself. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we tell people how busy we are? Why do we tell people how busy we are? Because we want to sound like we're, we, we're significant. We want to sound like we're important. We want to sound like we've got a lot of things on our plate, okay? I'm an important person. I'm a significant person. I matter to people, okay? I do it. And we do it when our significance, our security, our comfort is slowly being pulled away from us. We resort to a self-salvation project. That's what it is. It's finding ways in which we seek to be our own Savior and Lord. To set the mind on something, this is the way John Murray said it, and I don't think you could say it better than this. He said, to set the mind on something is to make, that, is to make the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. What your mind is set on is the absorbing object of thought, interest, affection, and perfect. Purpose. And is that Jesus Christ in your life? Or is it something else? Is Jesus Christ the absorbing object of thought? The absorbing object of interest? The absorbing object of affection in your life? Or is it something else? Because this is how, my friends, we get down to the nitty and gritty of how we change. Because that's what we're asking ourselves. That's why we're going through this series. We're talking about how we change. And one of the ways that we know that we change is what consumes our thoughts. What is our mind set on? What consumes our interest? What consumes our affections? And have you, in the last year, grown to treasure Jesus Christ more than you did last year? Has Jesus Christ been more the object of your affection in the last year than it was in the previous year? Have you learned, have you gone through the discipline of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit more this year than you did last year? 
Here's one of the ways in which our self-salvation projects work. You know the movie or the book, but I only saw the movie. The book was probably better. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is a story about two runners, really, right? Harold Abrams and um, Eric Little. And both of these men are on the uh, Olympic running team. And there's a spot in the movie where Harold Abrams, who's not a Christian, he says about his running and about his abilities, he says, when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. When that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Now, the other character, Eric Little, he's a Christian. Eric Little ended up being a missionary. He was martyred in the mission field. And when Eric Little runs, he has his eyes looking up, his mouth is wide open, and he looks, he looks really ridiculous, actually. And you're like, how can a guy run that fast when he's going like this? But there's a spot when he's sitting with his sister Jenny, and they're walking along the countryside, and she's challenging him to go be a missionary and, and to give up this running stuff and so on. And he looks at her and he says, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So here you have two men, both extremely fast Olympian runners. And one of them says, when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. And the other says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. One is running to be his own savior, and one is running to praise his savior. Massive difference. One is seeking to be his own salvation project, and the other, for him, is just icing on the cake. For Harold Abrams, if he loses, he's got deep turmoil. But for Eric Little, when he wins, it's just icing on the cake. If he wins, great. If he doesn't, so what? Doesn't matter. He's just running to praise his Savior. You know, another story where Jesus Christ, being the absorbing object of our affection. I remember when I was finishing my undergrad, there were these two there were these two brothers, and they were both applying to graduate schools. And they both were applying to graduate schools that they both were probably not going to get into. They, 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 they weren't as smart as they thought they were. I'll just be honest. One was applying to Duke Divinity School, and the other was applying to Georgetown Law. And both of the guys didn't get in. Neither one of them got into the schools that they wanted to get into. And I remember the one friend of mine just kind of brushed it off just said, well, it's disappointing, but I'll go to Multnomah Seminary instead. (laughs) It's not about me, don't worry. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's kind of a disappointment. (laughs) Anyway, I went there, just so you know, so I'm not trying, I'm dogging my own school, so. But the second guy, it, it threw him into a turmoil. I mean, I remember this guy, he never ended up going to law school. Never going to law school. Never ended up actually getting over the bitterness, it seemed, for not being accepted into this school. And I remember different people would talk to him in different ways about it. And some would actually seek to speak to the way he was feeling. They would talk to his emotions. And they would say, yeah, you're right, they should have, and so on. But it only, it only worked to, uh, to, to bolster his position. 
It only worked to help him just to continue to self-justify himself. It didn't actually, didn't actually help him. He became a more bitter person and so on. But what the gospel does is the gospel is able to say to us, what are you looking for to justify yourself? The gospel says, let me give you something else to be the absorbing object of your thought, your interest, your affection, and your purpose. Something else. No need to be your own self-salvation project anymore. No need for that gun to go off and you need to self-justify yourself. No need to tell everybody all the time how busy you are anymore. It just simply doesn't matter. Because if the king of the world died for you, if the king of the world loved you and gave himself up for you, then everything else is just icing on the cake. And when that goes down into your heart, when the spirit who dwells inside of you works that down a little further, you'll begin to change. You begin to be a person who is more holy, a person who is more at ease, as it were. Ever asked yourself, why can't you forgive that person? Why can't you get over not getting that job? Because something else besides Jesus Christ is the absorbing object of your thought. It's your deeply curved in flesh. And Paul says that it's death. To set your minds on the things of the flesh is death. Because that thing will never save you. Whatever it is, Idolatry always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. You know, mind and heart are not two different things here. He's not just saying don't have bad thoughts. No, Paul is saying, he's saying, look into the seat of your emotions. Look into your heart and see what preoccupies you. What captivates you the most? What is it that actually grips your heart? What is it that's captured your imagination? Now, imagination isn't just things for children. It's your vision of what the good life is. And you know, every holiday season, we, our, our imaginations are challenged again in a way that they rarely are throughout the rest of the year. Our imaginations are challenged to consider and to think, what is the good life? More stuff, more things, more this, more that. But the gospel gives us a new imagination. It gives us new things to long for, new things to dream for, new things to consider about what my life is actually about. What are the ambitions that drive you? What are the concerns that engross you? Because whatever those are, that is what you set your mind on. And what you need more than anything else is to set your mind on the Spirit because that is life and it is peace. Life means alive to God, alert to God, your inner self that thirsts for God. Life means that your inner self is aware of how much you need him. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after, after thee. That's what it means to be alive, to have an inner sense attuned to God, to sense your need for God, to long for God and peace. You know what peace is, don't you? Peace is, inter, is inner integration. Inner integration. There's a verse that's coming here in a moment that we'll preach on in the next couple of weeks. It's Romans 8.22 says, for we, now, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This word groaning, 
This word groaning is a word that's used of judgment in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, it means to bring war. Now this verse, without stealing too much of its thunder, it means that all of creation isn't the way that it should be. It's not at peace. It's the opposite of peace. It's disintegration. It means that everything longs to be renewed, restored, made right. As one scholar put it, the world needs to be set to its rights. There's disease, war, famine, prostitution, abortion, fatherless homes, child abuse, orphans. Things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. And then, of course, there's disintegration within ourselves. A deep curving in of the self, inner turmoil, depression, loss, fear of man, fear of not measuring up, fear of the future, disintegration. But this text is saying, to set the mind on the spirit is peace. It's integration. It's shalom. The way things ought to be. And the spirit has given us a foretaste of the future. Because there is coming a day when God is going to renew all the cosmos as we know them. And everything will be set to right. And everything will be reintegrated into the Son of God. Disintegration will be done away with, as it were. But in God's people, in the church, and in your own hearts, is the foretaste, is the beginning, is the first fruits of reintegration in the Spirit. That's what you have, my friends. That's the word that Paul uses He says in other places that the Holy Spirit is a down payment. He says it in Ephesians 1. He says it in 2 Corinthians 1.21. That God has put his seal on us and given us his spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee. A down payment. The first fruits of peace. Of shalom. No longer a heart that's deeply turned in on itself. Have you experienced more of that? In the last year? Let me just close with this comment. About peace. The incarnation of the Son of God is a gift to us. That's what we celebrate this month. We remember Jesus Christ becoming a man. I remember... I read this book in seminary, and it was called um, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. And it's this very technical book. It's this technical book that talks about how the resurrection and the incarnation are the only plausible explanations for how Christianity took off and spread. That if Jesus Christ wasn't actually the incarnate Son of God, and he didn't actually rise from the dead, then Christianity couldn't have taken off the way that it did. It's this scholarly work. It's like 600 pages. It's totally boring. But I remember this. I remember that when I finished reading this book and I thought about it, it hit me. It's real. He He really is the Son of God. And I'd thought it before, and I'd always believed it, but I remember it's like it went down two more levels in my heart in a way that I didn't even know existed. There was doubt and unsurety in ways that I didn't even know were there until I looked back on it. 
And who knows what kind of doubt and unsurety remains in our hearts now. But I remember the reality of seeing it's true. It's real. Bringing a sense of peace. At the Son of God, we had saw nine babies up here this morning. And they're real babies. <laughs> I touched one of them, to be sure. But Jesus Christ was a real baby. He really did live among us. He really was born to a teenage girl for our sake. He really did experience loss and rejection. He really was pursued by Herod to be killed. It's real. And when that penny begins to drop a little bit more, that Jesus Christ was condemned in the flesh for your sake, so the Spirit of Christ could dwell inside of you, when that penny begins to drop a little bit more, and I pray by God's Spirit that your affections and your imagination and your thoughts would be more absorbed into that than into your own self-salvation project. We read this quote from John Donne. It's a poem. He says, Take me to you and imprison me. For I, unless you enthrall me, will never be free, nor ever be chaste unless you ravage me. Let us pray. Father, we pray that this would be true. We pray that your spirit would enthrall us. We pray that you would set us free from our own self-salvation projects. We pray that the ways in which we curve in in ourselves and are self-centered, we pray that those would slowly fade away. We'd repent of those in the light of your beauty and your glory and your grace. And our imaginations would be again captured by you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We celebrate this morning what Jesus has done for us. We'll take communion together. If you're a guest with us this morning, visiting from another church, and you're a Christian, you've repented of your sins and trust Jesus, and you've been baptized, we welcome you to this table to participate with us. And if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to not take the elements of the table. Instead, consider the words that have been preached this morning and ask how you'd respond to what Jesus has said this morning. Come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in communion this morning.